On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about a foreign policy conundrum that we in Canada seem to be struggling with, and that is, how do we take aim at one country for its human rights violations, but let another country's human rights violations go because we want to do business with them? We're also going to be talking about Ontario Hockey League players. Should they be paid, or do they get paid, in a manner of speaking? And finally... We may introduce you to the single grossest thing you will ever hear one spouse do to another. You don't want to miss this one, or maybe you do. I don't know, but you're going to hear it. Stick around for the Scott Radley Show podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to chat about our foreign policy in this country, uh, which sometimes we do very, very well. There are things that I think we can be very proud of about our foreign policy in this country. There's other things that do make you scratch your head, however, and we're going to talk about one of those this evening. And the conversation, the jumping off point for the conversation comes from a very well done piece, very thought provoking piece in the National Post today. uh, The headline is the truth about our hypocritical foreign policy. And what is hypocritical about our foreign policy? Well, as the author, who I will introduce in just a moment, points out in this, Uh, We have taken a very angry, very hard, very firm stance with Saudi Arabia for its human rights violations, as we should have, as we absolutely should have, yet we are trying desperately to cozy up and create great new bonds and create a friendship with China that has human rights violations coming out the yin-yang that we don't even seem to acknowledge. We don't seem to have a problem with it. Why is that? David Brickusson is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he's the director of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. He joins me now. David, thanks for doing this today. You're very welcome. It's such an interesting piece that you wrote, and the reason is because it, uh, the reason I think it is, is because it touches on ideology, in a sense, uh, conflicting with reality. The idea that we want to be good people, we want to be good citizens of the world, but there's also economics and other things that we want to consider, and sometimes they don't mesh too well. Exactly. And the, the, uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is often framed in, in terms of what goes on in the Middle East. Uh, in other words, the uh, rivalry, the intense rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and who should Canada pick, that kind of thing. But what I was trying to point out is that in in this uh, globe uh, on this globe of ours, there are often conflicting situations. We get ourselves involved in them, and how can we avoid them? But that very often we are making decisions that our government feels is in our national interest, which are really hypocritical, in a sense that we'll point the finger at one country and shame them for doing this or that, and we'll uh, go to another country which is doing the same thing or worse, and we'll try to cozy up to them. So it shows that there's a, an inconsistency there, and I call it hypocrisy. Let's go through this for a second, because there are probably a few people who have not been following all these stories that closely. So just as a bit of a background, why is Canada right now angry or worse, whatever word you want to use there, with Saudi Arabia? There's a number of reasons. And first of all, in early August, uh, the Global Affairs Canada sent out a tweet about the Saudi imprisonment of a human rights uh, champion in Saudi Arabia, a lady who is married to a man who's uh, not married to a man, but the sister of a man whose uh, wife and children are in Canada, and they are Canadian citizens. 
So uh, what the, what Global Affairs Canada did was they basically called Saudi Arabia and said, let these people go. And the Saudis reacted, overreacted, I think, uh, greatly by kicking out the Canadian ambassador, cutting our air air transport routes between us and Saudi Arabia, declaring that we won't do any new business with Saudi Arabia, and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, really nasty... I mean, one of the things was to try to pull all Saudi students out of Canadian universities. So if you're in uh, in a medical school, let's say, in Toronto or in Hamilton, and uh, you're in second-year medical school, and all of a sudden you're going you're gonna to get ripped out of your studies and brought home to Saudi Arabia, that's not going to be very good. So that was uh, a, a complete overreaction. Uh, but we must say, uh, you know, on top of that is Saudi bombing in Yemen. On top of that is the murder of Khashoggi. The, uh, the the Saudi journalist uh, living in the United States, uh, and it's just and and now there are pro- approximately twelve uh, Saudis who are Shiites who are uh, waiting on their equivalent of death row to get their heads chopped off because of demonstrations that they participated in in 2016. So what is that showing us? It's showing us what we've known for years and years and years. The human rights of Saudi Arabia is not high on the agenda. Exactly. And and look, certainly there is plenty to loathe there. And as I said in the introduction, there is a time, you know, when Canada is going to take a hard stand, good. I mean, that seems like a good place for us to be taking a stand. However, David, and this is where you what you write about, talk a bit about, if you can, and fill us in a little bit on China's human rights situation, because we're cozying up to China while we're criticizing Saudi Arabia. What's going on in China? Well, it, we've known about uh, the, China, the Chinese treatment of dissidents for decades. I mean, there's nothing new about that. Uh, they, if you say anything uh, that is opposed to the government, uh, you get jailed. And uh, there are many, many, many political prisoners in China, and we're, we're well aware of that. And, and indeed, our government has raised that, that, that question with the Chinese from time to time. But all of the evidence that is sifting in from northwestern China from what is called the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, which used to be populated mainly by uh, the, the Uyghurs, who are a Turkic peoples. They're, they're not uh, Han Chinese. They're, uh, uh, they're uh, Caucasian and, uh, and Muslim. And uh, the Chinese have been trying to submerge or suppress that group for a long, long time by bringing in tens of thousands of Han Chinese uh, into that area, and by imprisoning and quote re-educating unquote uh, many hundreds of thousands of these of these Uyghur people. David, I'm uh, going to jump in for one second. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have idealism on some cases. We want to stand up for what's right. And at the same time, there are economic considerations that we really want to tap into. So we go really hard, it seems, after some countries, and we kind of let some other stuff go. Chatting with David Berkusen, who is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, a director of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary, and the author of a piece, The Truth About Our Hypocritical Foreign Policy, that's in the National Post today. And David, just before the break, we were talking, we, we, we were going over about Saudi Arabia and how Canada has taken a hard stand on them. We're talking about China and especially this area with the Uyghurs. We had a, an expert on Chinese foreign policy on the show a number of months back talking about the technological spying and the Orwellian world that is being created in that part of the world that is essentially reducing anyone there who may have a disagreement with the government in any way, shape, or form to essentially not even being a human being, not even being a citizen. 
Well, that's been going on for, as I said, for a long time, and it gets worse with uh, increases in technological advancement. Uh, we had a story very recently of uh, the authorities picking out one individual in a crowd of 60,000 people attending a, a sporting event, and they were able to do that with advanced camera technologies and computers and so on and so forth. So, uh, I mean, that, that's an old that's an old story. What is this, what is not so old. Well, actually, the story of the, the, the containment or the suppression of the Uyghur people is at least 20 years old. I visited that part of China over 20 years ago when it was already starting. There was an insurgency on the part of the Uyghurs who were fighting for their own ability to uh, express themselves and to keep their identity. And the Han Chinese, who ruled the area, uh, much like what's happened in Tibet, and uh, right now it's intensifying, uh, and the Chinese are taking all kinds of, uh, of, of authoritarian steps in the, the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, and the world doesn't seem to be paying very much attention to it, and we Canadians uh, should be paying attention to it if we are really concerned about human rights. And I think we need to be concerned about human rights, but I think sometimes we just turn our heads and we sort of say, well, okay, I'm not going to pay too much attention to that because I'm looking for big contracts from... Uh, Chinese investors and Chinese industry and so on. But And, and your point is 100% right, but it seems to completely undercut and pull the rug out from under our moral superiority that we demand Saudi Arabia be better, and then we don't seem to have the same demands of China. Well, that's true. And I, as I said also in the piece, there are other areas I mean, where, where we are hypocritical. I'm not, and I'm not saying Canada is the only hypocritical country in the there world. There are many. There are many. There, there are many, of course. I mean, uh, uh, what I said was any country that engages in international relations is to some extent engaging in hypocrisy. And uh, that goes for countries large or countries small. It goes for Canada as it goes for the United States. And I think it's well for the Canadian people to understand that, that for decades we've been sold a bill of goods by both conservative and liberal governments that somehow we alone occupy the high ground of, uh, of moral superiority in the world, that as, uh, as was once said, that we are a moral superpower, but we're not. And that's the point. We're not. And I think we need to face up to that. So, David, what should we do here then? Because it seems as though we can either step back a little from that moral high ground and not be quite as tisk-tisking with our, you know, our fingers about your bad behavior, or we can pull away from the economic side of things. We can hold that moral high ground and not be as interested in getting in bed with some of the other countries that don't have the same uh, human rights. Which way do we we go? We need to we need to trade with all kinds of countries in the world. We did during the Cold War, and we need to now. But that doesn't mean that we need to be quiet. And uh, you know, to be afraid of China and what China might do to us, okay, I understand that. But we do have a moral obligation to say to the Chinese, this is unacceptable to us, and we uh, feel that you are acting in ways that are not consistent with your ambitions to be uh, a, a great power in the world. Great even power even if that costs us? Even if yes. that costs us? Yes, even if that costs us. Because we don't do a hell of a lot of business with China. We do a lot of business with China, but our main business with the United States, and it will remain with the United States, and these dreams in Ottawa that somehow we're going to do more business with China offset uh, the uh, possible reductions of trade with the United States are just dreams. They're, it's not going to happen. Uh, The U.S. is going to be our main trading partner as long as the two countries exist side by side. So 
So whatever we could gain in China is going to be minuscule to uh, what we could gain elsewhere in the world. And I think, you know, China has always been for for people in Western Europe, for people in Britain back in the 18th century. China has been, you know, the, the golden country that if you sold one suit to one person in China, you would be, uh, you know, uh, extremely wealthy at the end of the day because there were so many people there. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that never turned out to be true. And so, and, and the Chinese trade policy today, and theft of intellectual property, and so on and so forth, imposes a huge cost on, on us doing business with them. It's a fascinating piece. I would encourage anybody to go look it up. You can find it online. David J. Burkhausen, The Truth About Our Hypocritical Foreign Policy. It is, uh, it is a great thinking point. It's a great talking point, David. I certainly appreciate you taking some time today. Okay, thank you. It's, uh, look, uh, uh, we have to do the right thing and call out countries for their foreign policy misbehaviors. I think we do, but how can we then do that and then turn our back just because another country has more money or more trade? If we're going to be consistent, and I think we would like to be consistent, we have to do it across the board, but that could cost us. It is a spot that we find ourselves in as a non-world power. States can get away with it. Russia probably could get away with it. I'm not sure we can get away with it, but I don't know what the answer is. Go read it. It's a very well done piece. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I thought this was a really interesting one. And of course, when we lined up to talk about this today, it has been in the news. I didn't realize that there was going to be not a resolution, but some kind of movement on this today. So the timing is great. The Ontario Hockey League is, as you know, the Hamilton Bulldogs play in this. It is a league, it's a developmental league for 16 to 20-year-olds. Sometimes they can be 21 when they're rounding out their time. These players are paid a very small amount of money for expenses, that kind of thing, and they get scholarships for university. But they are not paid in the way you would think of as an athlete, an NHL player, someone like that gets paid. Well, there has been a big $180 million lawsuit, class action lawsuit filed for the Canadian Hockey League. So the Western Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, OHL, trying to get back pay, saying these people are employees. They should be at least getting minimum wage. So the question is, should they be? Well, the Ontario government today said it will be saying, no, these are not employees. These are not people who should be getting paid. They are interns. They are apprentices. They are whatever else you like. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Josh Brown is a writer with the Waterloo Region Record. He covers the Kitchener Rangers. He is, I think by now, the dean of OHL writers. He is certainly uh, among, if not in the, you know, he's in the top one or two of the best writers on the OHL in this country. Josh, right? Well, you'll, you'll take very that. Very nice of you, Scott. I'd say maybe maybe one of the better looking ones. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, those guys have been around longer than me, so uh, I'm just happy to be part of the fraternity. Well, I would say the very best one, but I work for the spec, so I can't not mention <laughs> Terry Pekoski. So you're in the top two, anyway. <laughs> All right, thanks. Uh, this is a uh, this is a really interesting story because this this decision today, and I don't even know what this decision really means, um, but that the government says no, these players are going to continue to not to get paid is being made in the shadow of this hundred and eighty million dollar class action lawsuit to try and get money from them. What do you think? What's your first thought when you start hearing people talk about whether we should be pl- pay- playing these pay- sorry paying these players? What's your thought? It's the issue that will never go away, that's for sure. It's been going on for years, and it kind of you know, gets momentum uh, every time 
something in the news like this happens. Um, I, you know what? It's funny. I, I used to be pretty much on squarely on the side of the team that they should not be paying players, but I, I think maybe I'm getting older, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm feeling. Uh, I, I feel like you could see both sides to this. Uh, I know that's not really the best answer, but I, I think the idea of paying people is noble. These are teams that I think can clearly afford to pay minimum wage. I think it comes into around three hundred grand a year per team. Um, Rangers are a publicly or, or a team that, that opens their books and the only one in the OHL. And then they made they took in eight million bucks last year. Now that wasn't all revenue. That was, or, sorry, not all profit. That was total revenue. Um, so I don't think it would cripple them. And, and in fact, the GM of the team has told me before, uh, or sorry, the owner, the president of the team has told me before that he thinks it'd probably be cheaper if they could pay these guys minimum wage than to have to do all the other things they do. Um, here, you know, and so some of the things that, that people, I mean, I think it's a case of be careful what you wish for. Like, yeah, it sounds great to get paid minimum wage when these big teams are making millions of dollars off of sort of your name on your back, your jersey. Uh, but there's a lot of things, of course, the teams do, and I don't know what would happen to those things if they had to pay minimum wage. Like some of the things that jump out, you know, basically you're living uh, during the hockey season for free, your billets, you're eating free, all your travel, your hotel, your food on the road. All your equipment, I mean, there was a guy in the Rangers one year, I think he went through like 800 bucks in sticks a week, he used to break them so much. Um, you know, support staff, on-the-call dentists, doctors, trainers, nutritionists, that kind of stuff, insurance, and of course, uh, you get, uh, I think it's about 470 bucks a month to go towards your cell phone or clothes or whatever, and I think there's even a grand you get for if you want to like do power skating in the summer or something like that, or a personal trainer. And the biggie, uh, of course, is a scholarship that you can get to university. Now, there's a bit of a timeline on that to use it. I think it's 18 months within your last your OA year. You have to start enrolling. But while you're in, in on the team, you can go to school for free, too. Um, so there's all these kind of nice little uh, nuggets that, that, that you get. And if I'm a team and I suddenly got to shell out 300 grand to pay players, I'm probably pulling back on some of those. Well, let's go through both different sides because you say you can see both sides. I, I can too. So let's go through these two sides and let's start with the players as the idea that they should be paid. And the argument, as you say, if you've got the Kitchener Rangers that are making $8 million, now not every team is making that much in revenue, but certainly... Uh, people are paying to come to these games, sometimes good money to come to these games. Uh, they are amateurs in the loosest probably sense of the word amateurs only because they haven't been paid as opposed to being truly amateurs because they're all wanting to go to the NHL and hit the jackpot with the money there. So, I mean, if you are a player, um, why wouldn't you think that you should be paid for your work? Well, yeah, I mean, and that's essentially the point of the argument of the lawyers is that, you know, these are the guys that, you know, it, it's not, it's not uh, restricted to their on-ice, you know, uh, games every week that people are paying to see. They're buying merchandise, I mean, millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars in merchandise. They're doing things all through the week, like going to schools, you know, doing volunteer work. Um, it's, it's almost like a, a nonstop carousel. And, and the thing that, uh, you know, the OHL always proposes that this is like a student these are student athletes, and we put education first. But there's there's so many things that are taxed on them. Like I was just thinking this week, a couple of the Rangers went to the under seventeen World Championships. Like they're sixteen year olds, so you know they're in high school. Clearly, they need to learn. They were gone for two weeks. They got back on Monday, and the team played on Wednesday, but left Tuesday to go play in Erie. So you know, <laughs> two weeks they're back for one day, and then you know the people forget these teams always leave a couple days early or a day early and stay in a hotel for travel, and that makes sense, but you start to think like your education is getting, uh, you know, worked over a little bit too. So, it, I, you know, they, I could feel the need for some of the compensation that these guys want. 
Well, it sounds very much like the same argument that is made south of the border with the NCAA. And especially, and you mentioned a really interesting point in this, is even if you're going to say, you know what, we give all this stuff to them, we give them all the scholarship and the equipment and all the rest, so fine. But there are certain players in this league who come along and you talk about merchandise. You go to a Bulldogs game, there are certain players whose names and numbers you will see being worn by fans. And you say, well, that's that's their likeness. Should they not benefit from being a star that way? And that's another part of the argument that you can make. That if I am a good enough player or a popular enough player and people want to buy stuff that's going to enrich the team, why should I not get a slice of that? Well, and also I think there's, you know, and some of these guys are on video games, you know, in the OHL too. That's true. Like, it's big, big, big money being tossed around and i guess you know the argument is if it's so bad well why don't you go play in another league because there are other options i mean you can play tier two you can play and go to the ncaa those guys get drafted too so you can't say you know that all the attention and all the scouts are only in the chl and that's where you got to go to get noticed because you clearly don't um so there, there is something that's enticing to these players to want to come and play in this league and i think it's the full package that you get uh, that's not you know there's often equated People say, well, you know, if you had employees at McDonald's, would you make them work 40 hours for nothing? Well, you might if they got all of their living expenses covered and had insurance and a free education for, you know, serving burgers. Maybe they would work for free. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a tough, tough argument. And, and I, like I said, it, it's tough to side on one side or the other. But I just worry that if they were to finally get, like, I think sometimes... I don't know who these people necessarily are to the best intentions of the players. Like, yeah, they might get them some money, but then if they lose all this other stuff, it might not be, it might be a better deal to keep what they have if they step back and take a bigger look. Yeah, I, I do think that it's an unfair description to say they work for free. Uh, they may right. not work for what they think they should get, and they may think that there should be other things there. It's not that they're not getting nothing for it. We can have a debate, right. you and I and anyone else can have a debate whether it's fair compensation, but it's not for free. Right, all right, yeah, so sorry. let's, so let, no, no, I mean, look, it's a word that gets thrown around all the time and it becomes part of the lingo because it's how, it's how it's phrased, but it's, it's not quite accurate. Now let's go the other way. You mentioned that Kitchener has a, has revenues of $8 million. The London Knights, uh, I think their revenues last year were something like $47 billion. I don't even know what they, I mean, they, <laughs> they, they make a ton. They deal with the Bud Gardens, so yeah. They make a lot of money. A little bit higher. Uh, Michael Andlauer with the Bulldogs, I don't know how much he made in revenues, but he's a deep-pocketed guy who's passionate about the team. There are teams that if they suddenly had to pay three or, let's say it was $500,000 a year, they could deal with that without much problem. But there are other teams that you look at and you say, okay, if it's Owen Sound, it's it may be Guelph, if it's Flint, what happens if they suddenly get hit with another $500,000? Because they claim they're barely scraping by right now. Yeah, and you know, it's hard to say when the people don't open their books to, to really see where they stand. Um, but clearly there are have and have-nots in the OHL. I mean, you just need to go to games around the league to see that some, some franchises are really enjoying the fruits of the labor and others aren't. Um, and I think, you know, there's also the risk factor, right? I mean, the teams are the ones taking the risk. Like, I'm sure the Bulldogs, uh, you know, during their run last year at the end there, they were getting some wicked crowds. I, I haven't been down the Raiders only played them once, unfortunately, so I haven't been down to see them yet this year. But I wonder if this year, in a sort of quote-unquote rebuild year, if that they're, they're realizing that same kind of revenue as they did last year. I would doubt that they are. Um, and other teams, you know, that can only put maybe 2,500 people in their barn, are just never going to be able to make the money that some of the big ones do. And so they're taking a big risk that in a down year they may lose money, and then it's still on the hook for all this money they got to pay players. 
that's when it can get tricky, I think. I, you know, it got me starting to think, what would players do? And I don't think we know the answer. And maybe this is, you know, a story for down the road for either in Hamilton or in Waterloo or wherever. But if you were to go to the player beforehand and say, listen, you got your choice. You can have the scholarship money at the end of the year, at the end of your time, or you can have minimum wage right now. I'd, I'd be really interested to see what the breakdown would be and how many players would go either way. If you said you don't get both, you get one or the other. Yeah, well, I think right now they would all say they would toe the team line because they'd be scared crapless that if they spoke out, their eyes might shrink or they might find themselves in the junior beat motion or something like that. And I think that that's real. I don't think they want to they want to rock the boat at all. And I can understand that being a young teenager, and especially when you got your career ahead of you, you don't really ever want to speak out. If they could be honest, though, it would be a fascinating question. Well, that's what I able to be. That's yeah. what I mean. No, if you were if you were set down to sign your player contract and you had to check one box or the other, and it's either we're going to get minimum wage for forty hours a week or your scholarship for all of your school covered. When you're done, I'd be really interested to see. I, I, I bet you that I know which one mom and dad would be pointing to and which one a lot of the <laughs> players would be pointing to. Yeah, but, it wouldn't be the minimum wage. But it also raises one other question. We only have a couple more minutes left here, but it raises one more question, and that is, wh- what exactly are the players who are playing in junior hockey in Canada? Are they, I mean, they're athletes, but are they are they apprentices, basically? Are they in a in a well-watched, well-observed, well-funded apprenticeship program with the hopes of going to the next level of hockey, or is it something different? Because if it's an apprentice, it becomes a different thing again. Yeah, well, I think that's a, I think that's an, a good word because it almost kind of sums it up. It's almost like I was thinking today that uh, there's all these hockey schools popping up where you, you can go study, but but a big portion of it is, I don't know if they have in Hamilton, they're popping up around here, and you can you play hockey uh, for a lot of the day and your personal trainers, and it's really heavily focused on hockey, but you pay to go to those schools. It's like these guys are getting that without having to pay uh, by playing in the OHL to a, to a whole different level. Um, and, and I think, you know, today's decision, I don't know if it's, like you said, if it's some finality to it, it seems more of a, a nod of support from the government, but I, I think I think the OHL's got to be happy. This is what they've been fighting for, because I just think that if, if you do pay players, I think their worry is that it just opens up a different can of worms. Like, what are they going to demand next? Um, are they going to demand that they get the scholarship and the minimum wage? Uh, do they strike one day? Do the demand raises one day? And, and I don't think they want to go down that road. Well, that's, yeah, you know what? We weren't going to do that, but i got to take another minute or two here, because that's, if you do say that suddenly paying is one of the things, and, and again, I can see both sides of this, but when the next Eric Lindros comes along or the next, I don't know, who's the last truly or John Tavares or whoever the last really great superstar is, uh, Connor McDavid, of course, Connor what am I talking McDavid, about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, how am I forgetting that? Uh, and he comes along and suddenly says, yeah, you know what? I got NCAA opportunities. Um, I can, uh, I can go elsewhere. So I, yeah, I want not just minimum wage. I want 50 grand a year plus scholarship money and a private room and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden now what happens? Yeah. And there's teams that would do that. That's the thing. There's certain teams that could afford stuff like that and would do it to get the best players and it erases what, if there is an even playing field out there, what is a semblance of one is, and and that, like I said, that's just a whole can of worms that like you don't want. I, I, that would that could really have a, a really big effect on the league. It is. Uh, it's a really interesting one. It, it's not going away anytime soon, and this lawsuit still lingers out there. Um, Josh, if this lawsuit 
and we'll finish with this. If this lawsuit was to be successful, if the, if the group, the, the class action that was behind this, if they were to be successful, and let's not say it was $180 million they got. Let's say they won $100 million in back pay. Would there be an OHL the next day? Uh, there could be teams in London and Kitchener. <laughs> <laughs> well, there would definitely be a team in London. No, I'm just teasing. Um, you know what? That, that would be a lot of dough to pay at once. I know that OHL's got money set aside from all the TV things they do. They make some big bucks off that kind of stuff, like Sportsnet Game of the Week and you know all these tournaments, say the Canada Russia Series and things like that. So they may have some, but I don't know. That sounds like a lot of money. To pay. If, it was, if it was split between the franchises on their own, uh, you definitely wouldn't have, I don't think, some, some teams in some of the smaller markets. Uh, he is Josh Brown. He writes for the Waterloo Region Record about the OHL. You can read his stuff. Had a great piece in this week uh, about his 21 thoughts for how to improve the league. I would say that about 20 of them were excellent ideas. I don't even remember what the 21st was that I didn't like so much, but the 20 of them I thought were just <laughs> outstanding. Uh, Josh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Take care. It's, uh, it's an interesting idea whether a 16-year-old who could be working at McDonald's who could be working at Home Depot, who could be working wherever, should be paid minimum wage for his efforts on the ice. Or if you say, well, you're getting a scholarship, you're getting your equipment, you're getting your room, you're getting your board, you're getting your education, you're getting world-class instruction and training and nutrition and all the rest of the stuff, we are paying you, just not in cash with a paycheck at the end of the month. This is the debate. This is the discussion that's going on right now. We'll take a break. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those who don't know what this is, for those who are new to the show, once a week, doesn't have to be Thursday, but this week it is, I gather up three of the more unique, ridiculous, interesting, puzzling, pick your adjective, doesn't matter, stories from around the world. I give Will a brief, Will's the other guy, a guy on the other side of the glass. He's the guy pressing the buttons and choosing the music and taking phone calls. Uh, Will will hear these stories and using whatever criteria he chooses, will choose which one is his story of the day. So let us begin, Will, in, this story is in, uh, where's this story from? Uh, North Carolina, Johnsville, North Carolina. I guess military folks in uh, Marines in that area were doing some exercises, some drills. Okay. So they were flying a transporter plane around the area and were practicing being able to push heavy equipment out the back so it would land, you know, the parachute would yeah, deploy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, didn't go quite as planned. Thankfully, nobody was hurt because no kids were out playing. <laughs> but a three-ton Humvee that was pushed out the back of the transporter plane, the parachute failed to deploy. And it also landed way off base, seven miles away from the target on a children's playground. (laughs) No! So we can laugh because nobody was there. Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, if you had tried to pick the worst possible target, you couldn't have done a better job than hitting the kids' play area with this Humvee. So apparently neighbors heard a gigantic boom and then saw the parachute deploy when it hit the ground. (laughs) This is a National Lampoon movie. It kind of is, except it's the Marines, unfortunately. (laughs) Thankfully, nobody was injured. Uh, Story number two today comes from Guntersville, Alabama. The uh, Alabama Marshall County Sheriff's Office apparently is trying to work out some financial problems that they've stumbled upon because they made a slight purchasing error 
for janitorial supplies, I guess they were trying to buy 240, to order 240 rolls of toilet paper for the police station. Okay, that's... Well, somebody put a decimal in the wrong place and they suddenly ordered 24,000 rolls of toilet paper. (laughs) You know, sometimes... And this is not, I've looked it up, this is a town of 90,000 people. Your sheriff's department can't be bigger than maybe 25 or 30 people. That means that every cop now has a thousand rolls of toilet paper to keep his butt cleaner than any other police department in the world. Where do you even store 24,000 <laughs> rolls of toilet paper? Well, you know what? It's got a, it's got almost that same amount of uses. They could they could uh, use it for blocking things up like in the streets well, if there's things a flooding. Aren't, hopefully things no, aren't blocked I'm up or else it'll never get civic. used. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> They're set for life. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture when the guy comes in with the clipboard, you know, the delivery guys, can you sign <laughs> Can you sign for this? Yeah, sure. Where are we going to back up the truck? It's like, back up the truck? We're supposed to be getting like 15 bags. At, I'm sorry. No, we got a we got a whole transport truck here. We got two of them, actually. The other one's just right behind it. There were a lot of very concerned people at the shipping company, <laughs> 20, I'm thinking. <laughs> what is going on in Guntersville that you need 24,000 rolls of toilet paper? Anyway, the problem, the biggest problem is that they, that was $22,000 that they spent. Uh, Their entire supply budget for the year for all janitorial and cleaning supplies is 15,000. Oh no. So I guess they're cleaning everything with toilet paper now. You know what? They should have like the Guntersville Toilet Paper Festival and they should turn it into a tourist (laughs) attraction, have people sculpt paper mache sculptures of the law enforcement of the town out of the toilet paper. Yeah, that would be something. I'd uh, pay to see it. Number three, this one comes right here in Canada from Saskatoon. Story from the Globe and Mail. And uh, this this story truly is... Uh, I, I, um, <laughs> it, it's so hard to even talk about this because um, it is so disturbing. It is it, it, This may be the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, and sorry, I just closed it, so I got to reopen it I, here. I am still recovering from like okay, here we your go. story two weeks ago. So yeah, well, this one may be worse than that. A, a woman in uh, Saskatoon, her husband owned a tattoo parlor, and he was an avid purveyor of the tattooing arts. Hence the music when we came in. Start me up yeah. from tattoo you. He is a big user of tattoos. His entire body, from stem to stern, tip to toes, was covered in tattoos. He died, or was dying. And she thought, hmm, but all that beautiful artwork on his body. No. She has arranged to have, after he passes away, to have him skinned. No. So his skin can be hung in his tattoo parlor so people can see the work that was done. That is the worst (laughs) thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Who in the world wants to walk into a tattoo parlor and see a... Skin the the hide the tanned hide of a former employer or boss. This is like out of Silence of the Lambs. This is exactly out of Silence of the Lambs. I mean, it's horrible that he's dying. I'm terribly saddened that he's sick and that he's dying and he's leaving a family. But for you to have your husband skinned and put up on the wall, who is? Wh- <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> Thankfully, we're out of time. 
where do you start with the thought behind that? And what be- could you imagine being tattooed and you're staring at this? It, like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> anyway, we're out of time. Your choice for story of the day today. Will's story of the day. Will it be the Humvee that was dropped out of a transponder or a transport plane by the Marines and landed on a children's playground? Nobody hurt. Was it the 24,000 rolls of toilet paper accidentally ordered by an Alabama Sheriff's Department? Or was it the woman in Saskatoon who is having her husband skinned to preserve his tattoos? Well, I already know which story is going to be showing up in my nightmares tonight, so I think I'm going to pick the Humvee that deployed about five minutes after it hit the ground. Yeah. I know what everyone's going to be having nightmares about tonight. That is, is that not the most horrible thing ever? I kind of love it, and it is horrifying. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Ponder that one. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.